Our epistle lesson this morning comes to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. I invite you to turn there with me. If you've got the Pew Bible, you can pull it up on your phone. If you've got your Bible there, if you brought your own personal one, or what I like to do sometimes, just close my eyes and let the Word of God wash over me. Let's go. 2 Corinthians. The point is this. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance. So that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad. He gives to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our bath. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. This is the first time in my life, and probably in most people's lives in this room, that we have celebrated Christ the King Sunday when there is also a famous king in the Western Hemisphere. There aren't many monarchies left in the world, and I think it's safe to say that the one in Britain is the most noteworthy, at least to us Westerners, particularly here in America. There's a real obsession with the royals in England, from the interest in Harry and Meghan and all things that they're doing, to our continued collective grief over Princess Diana's premature death. Y'all remember they sold Beanie Babies, they were purple with a, like the rose on them when she passed. And the fact that The Crown is one of the most popular shows on TV. We have a love affair with the British royalty. I mean, uh, this year, one of our country's top news stories was Queen Elizabeth's death and King Charles's coronation. I even mentioned it in my sermon back in the summertime whenever I made a joke about how he was holding two sticks and the holy hand grenade. You know, I I once met somebody who did not know who their own representative was to the United States House of Representatives or to the U.S. Senate. 
but they knew all the names of the entire royal family, including the children born in the last 10 years. I think it's safe to say we have a deep emotional investment in the ruling family across the pond. But why? What is our collective cultural intrigue that causes citizens of the rebellion to continue a long-distance love affair? It would make way more sense for us to have, have disdain for the British rulers. I mean, they were, in fact, the reason we decided to declare our independence. It was King George who levied such harsh taxes that a couple Bostonians decided to have the most famous tea party in history. It's ironic that a country can be so simultaneously full of national pride where we write epic stories and plays about our origins and also continue perpetuating a middle school-like infatuation with the ones that caused our forefathers to revolt in the first place. But perhaps the interest in the idea of royalty is hardwired into our DNA. Maybe it's inescapable. If you think about it, our preference for democracy is still a pretty new mainstream view. In a historical context, it makes more sense that we would be interested in royalty. Not long ago, just about every country had a king. Today, there are still 43 sovereign nations in the world who have monarchies. But kings and queens, up until just recently, were as ubiquitous to the human experience as shopping is to Black Friday. I mean, look at the Bible. Throughout Scripture, humanity has had a deep interest in royalty. Think back to the book of Samuel. The people of Israel, they lived in a theocracy where God was their ruler and king, and he appointed earthly judges to help them discern God's will and to lead the people on earth. But the Israelites, they weren't having it. They didn't want this anymore. They came to Samuel and they said, you know what? We don't like the current state of things. We want a king. And Samuel's like, you don't want a king. And the people are like, no, we really do. Look at them over there. Those countries, they have kings. They're doing great. We want to be like them. We want a king. And so Samuel says, hey, I talked to God, called him up, my prayer phone. And, and I told him that y'all want a king. And he said... Tell them they don't want a king because what's going to happen? He's going to enslave some of the people. He's going to draft people into the military. He's going to take your daughters and a large portion of your income. Trust me, you don't want a king. And the Israelites are like, yeah, actually, we do. And you know what's crazy? God relented. God gave them something he didn't want them to have. He gave them a king. And the books of First and Second Samuel, and then the books after that, First and Second Kings, are all about that reality and how terrible it actually was and how it wasn't the thing that they thought it was going to be and how time after time the kings failed. The next part of the Old Testament follows these kings as they are being uh, splitting the country into two, the north and the south, and how they're overrun by other monarchies and then they're cast out of their homelands and then the prophets come along. And do you remember how the Old Testament finishes up? It's all these prophecies about what? About a king. It's going to come and make everything right. But how a king will come and restore the things that they had lost. Suffice it to say, kings and kingdoms are a big deal in the Bible. But here's the thing. I like the Bible a lot. In fact, I love the Bible. 
I read it all the time. But I also like living in a democratic republic. I know that a king is something the prophets were hoping for, but I like living in a place where I can vote for somebody to represent me and not have to be subject to some king I will never meet. I can't imagine being ruled by a king that will have no concern for Mobile County. A king's not going to know what the snapper limit should actually be. No king is going to be concerned with the length of the flounder that I'm allowed to keep. But my representative to the United States House of Representatives is supposed to know those things. My senator is supposed to advocate for such things. I mean, for goodness sakes, we are three days removed from celebrating a day when a boat full of people fled a king so they could live in a land free from religious tyranny. And that tyranny came from monarchical rule. Every year, the 4th of July means something to me. 246 years ago, a bunch of people said, let's get out from underneath a king. And let's have a country where people get to make their voices heard and decide things for themselves. But like I said, it might be inescapable. There is actually a deep yearning for a monarchy that we might not be able to avoid. It could be hardwired into our DNA. There might be something in our very souls that knows deep down one ruler is actually best. And if you happen to be a Christian, this shouldn't sound totally outlandish to you. This might not be surprising. It should actually make sense that perhaps democratic representation could just be an earthly placeholder for what is ultimately a better reality. Because a tenet of Christianity essential to our faith is not only that a king is the right thing, but also that a king is the best thing. We believe that there is one king who knows what is best more than our collective votes. A king whose will is better than our own individual opinions on any given matter. There is a king that is more righteous than any other leader and a monarchy that matters more than any other form of government and that king's name is Jesus. We Christians believe and declare every year on this day that Christ is king. But what does that even mean? What does it mean for Christ to be the king? I mean, we say it's true, but do we actually know what we mean when we say it? Because according to the Gospels, God's kingdom is very different than the ones we're accustomed to. I mean, the main thread throughout all four Gospels is that the kingdom of God is near, and it looks different. It doesn't look like the kingdom that we are used to seeing. It looks like everything Jesus said it looks like. It looks like a man who sells everything he has just to go buy a field because there's a precious, precious treasure in it. It looks like a father whose son committed sin after sin against him and everybody else, and then the father welcomes him back with open arms. The kingdom of God looks like a mustard seed that is the smallest seed that there is, but creates a huge bush or like a little bit of yeast in a bowl of flour. The kingdom of God looks weird and countercultural, maybe even a little bit backwards, but that's the realm where Jesus is king. 
Jesus is king in a backwards kingdom that doesn't jive with the ones that we're used to seeing. And when I remember that fact, I find myself gravitating to two essential truths of my faith. When I find myself pressed between the world as it is and my own opinions about how it should be, and the reality of heaven, there are two phrases that are very important that I cling to. The first is this. Whatever is true will continue to be true, whether I know it to be true or not. I'm going to say that again because it's kind of my life motto. It's my scapegoat for whenever I'm like, I don't know the answer, but God does. Whatever is true will continue to be true, whether or not I know it to be true. That means whatever I don't understand, the things I haven't yet learned, and even the things I might have wrong in my own personal theology and worldview, nothing I think or do will change what ultimately is. If God is the ultimate truth, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, then what is true is already true. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't change it. And so our lives are spent trying to discover what is already true and what will continue to be. That's why we call this whole process of being church a discernment. We're discerning the will of the Holy Spirit. We're listening to one another as we try to hear what God is saying and doing. We're not trying to bend the things of God to our own wills or opinions. I often have to remind myself, that the kingdom and the will of God is what it has always been, not just what I think it should be. That God's will is better than my own. The second thing I hold to is this, and perhaps it's even more important to this notion that Christ is king. It's that God is all in all. Perhaps you've heard that phrase before. It's in the Bible. God is all in all. It's in one of Paul's letters where he describes that there is nothing outside of who God is. This is a very vast phrase, and it often doesn't get his due credit because it's so hard to imagine. I mean, it means alpha and omega, beginning and end, first and last, before and after, that there is nothing in this world that would exist were it not for God, and that there's nothing that will remain that is outside of God. You see, the things about the kings of this earth is that they are limited to their own particular empires. The things of the British Empire do not include those of the Spanish Empire. The things of Denmark do not include the things of Qatar. On earth, a king is only over the things that are within the might of their military or their influence. But that is not the case for the king of kings. No, for Jesus, everything that exists, exists under his rule. He is the king over all kings. And he is the Lord of lords. And this notion that God is the Lord of Lords is often misunderstood. We tend to think of it as like this cosmic reality that is outside of time and space, this metaphysical thing. He's the divine being over other invisible beings that we can't see. But that's not really how the Bible understands it. It is in part. 
But more accurately, when we translate the Bible, the English word Lord stands for a lot of different things. In the Old Testament, if you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it is standing in place for the word Yahweh, the literal name of God for the Hebrew people. But there's other times in the Old Testament that you see capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d, and that could be any number of things. Sometimes it's Elohim. Sometimes it's just a general, the generic name for God. And in the New Testament, sometimes we see attributed to Jesus, lowercase l, lowercase o, lowercase r, and lowercase d. It's still the word Lord, but it means something entirely different. It's the same word that we understand for a ruler or a governor. It's Jesus is the Lord over all the other lords. It's this recognition about his function, about his rule, about his role, that there is nobody else on earth who has more power or authority than he does. That's what it means for him to be all of those things, all and all. That he is the capital L Lord, he is the lowercase L Lord, and means that God has no power, no governor, or no ruler that is above him. It means that he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords and all in all. And on this Sunday after Thanksgiving, this last Sunday in the Christian calendar for the year, this Christ the King Sunday, that's what we come to remember. That's what we come to affirm. That's what we celebrate. We remember that Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords, and his kingdom is like no other. This kingdom is not limited to one country. It's not limited to one people, to one party, or to one voting block. Kingdoms like that are finite. They will fade away. They lack breath. They lack depth. Kingdoms of this world live in scarcity. It's why we fight each other and why wars take place. Divisions are a product of scarcity. We think there is a limit on a thing, so we have to fight for control over it. Land, money, resources, power. There's only so much. And so we want to control the things the best that we can and have the most of it. This is both nationally true and individually true. It's why people punch each other on Black Friday. There's only so many sales, and I need to beat that person so I can get it myself. There's a scarcity. But what does 2 Corinthians say? What did we just read a moment ago? God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance. Every blessing in abundance. The world lives in the realm of scarcity, but God rules over abundance. God gives freely out of abundance because there's no limit to his blessings. Paul goes on in that 2 Corinthians text to say, By always having enough of everything, you will be able to share abundantly in every good work. He who has given you everything will continue to do so. And it will overflow. And we will give thanks to God for it. Friends, I got to be honest. Lately, I have been dwelling a lot in what I lack. I've been dwelling a lot in what we lack as a congregation. I've been caught up in the fact that we have to choose between wind insurance and staff positions. I've been focused on the fact that we might have to reduce our operating expenses 
some next year. I've been thinking about the fact that I can't buy all the Christmas gifts I want to for my wife and children. And that there are consumer goods I really want, but I know would put my family's budget in distress. Aren't we often absorbed by what we don't have? I mean, isn't that the whole point of Thanksgiving? To try to get us out of that mentality? But then Monday comes, and there's Cyber Monday sales, and there's a reminder like, ooh, what don't I have? It's because we're caught up in the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of commodities, the kingdoms of personal desire, the kingdoms of our neighbors, what they have, and the kingdoms of the Instagram accounts that we follow. But those are not the kingdom of God. Those things are scarce. That's what we fight about. But they exist well underneath all the things that God rules over. God has already and continues to bless us with gifts and realities that will outlive all the things that are scarce. God freely gives us an abundance of things that we typically take for granted. And the, the things of this kingdom, they are more valuable than gold. They are more precious than silver. The, they are bestowed upon us by the one true king, and they are more than enough. They are the air we breathe, the lives we live, the creation in which we dwell, the freedom we have to choose. They are this building but they are the, also the people sitting next to you and the strangers we have yet to meet. They are the places we will get to serve and the Bibles we get to study and the thoughts that we get to think. As Paul said to the Ephesians, the God of abundance is able to do immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine. And it's to him. It is to that God of abundance be the glory in the church for generations forever and ever. That's what we come to give thanks for. That's what we come to declare. That God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that there is nothing we need that he has not or will not give us even if we don't always understand it, even if it doesn't seem like we have it, even if our own instincts and opinions are at odds with God's will. That doesn't change God's will. Who God is and what God does will continue to be true whether you know it to be true or not. And I pray for me and for you that that is enough. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.